This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new mirage was unveiled to the world. The strip had been reinvented. The architect of all of it was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn, the naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own Treasure Island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this final episode of Vegas Fed, the promised, ill-fated defense comes. Assistant U.S. Attorneys Jay Angelo and Tom O'Connell argue their case. The verdicts are in, and the prosecutors take a trip to San Francisco. After we arrested our case, Dan Albrecht called his star witness Val Gowie. I almost felt bad for him. She repeated what she had told us a few weeks earlier in our office, that she never said the driver was white, but said that he was Italian, meaning to her, dark. She also added that she had thought she heard a person making noises from the back of the car from underneath some things, possibly crying. I think she actually meant that she thought she'd heard someone having sex, but was too embarrassed to say. Sensing a potential landmine, I figured I'd just leave that alone. So after I walked her through the drill that we'd done in the office, I tried to go a bridge too far. She'd already testified that the driver was one of the defendants she'd seen on TV. Not the white guy, but the bigger of the two black guys. Then I took a chance and asked her if she saw him in the courtroom, hoping to drive home the final nail in the coffin. And she said that now, in person, she couldn't be sure. Oh well, the damage had been done. His star witness had not helped Sherwood a bit. Now it was time for closing arguments. In federal court, because the government has the burden of proof, we get to go twice. We go first, and we get to rebut the defense counsels after they give their closing arguments. Jay led off. He began with legal arguments, then did an outstanding job of marshalling an ocean of evidence. The transcript totaled 42 pages. The challenge is reminding the jury of as much of the evidence they'd heard as possible without losing them. You've already heard most of the evidence as we unearthed it throughout the course of the investigation, but not all. If I repeated it all here, I'm pretty sure I'd lose a lot of you. Jay hit upon the numerous expenditures, always in hundreds. He referenced the corroborating business records of airline travel, hotel stays, phone records, records of purchases of cars, jewelry, electronics, and summarized it all with a pithy quote. They left a paper trail that would choke a goat. He recalled the devastating testimony of the cooperators, Anthony Watkins, Glenda McBride, 
and the other young witnesses, the Sacramento Misfits and the suburban St. Louis Brats. He discussed the feeble money laundering attempts by Cuddy in Newport Beach and Sherwood and Watkins in St. Louis. He demolished the nonsensical drug dealer defense as he did the absurd claim that Cuddy had conspired with Watkins, whom he'd only met through Sherwood, to frame Sherwood. Of course, he recounted the spellbinding testimony of the victims, Kevin Wynn and her father, and the unassailable fingerprint evidence on the Beyonder parking ticket. He highlighted the chart we created to enable the jury to visualize the telephone links, which George Lyford had remarkably discovered on a hunch and which broke the case wide open. But in my view, the most powerful part of Jay's presentation was when he hearkened back to the actual kidnapping with such genuine pathos that I knew he was close to tears. He also looked gaunt and drained to me, which angered me more than I already was. Responding to Posen's anticipated closing, Jay stated that we had proven about eight different ways interstate commerce is affected by the Mirage Hotel and Casino worldwide. Next, Posen was up. Virtually his entire case in defense of Cuddy rested upon a stipulation that the gross revenues of the Mirage in 1993 was $721 million and the operating income was $142 million. The transcript of Mitchell Posen's closing statement consists of only seven pages, essentially arguing that the $1.45 million ransom was a drop in the bucket and that, therefore, the interstate business of the corporation had not been adversely affected by the extortion. This, while acknowledging during his closing that the law only requires a showing that there has been a probable or potential effect on commerce. When it came time for the government's rebuttal, I would dispose of that argument summarily. Correct me if I am wrong, I said. I could have sworn Steve Wynn testified in this trial and testified that he was the CEO and that the $1.45 million that was diverted from his casino would have been utilized in the business of the Mirage, but for the extortion. After Mitchell Posen, it was time for Dan Albrecht's closing. It started off with his rendition of having watched the Kentucky Derby over the weekend and how the Derby reminded him of the trial because it has big, fast, strong horses, blinders on, here we go again, not seeing anything to their right, anything to their left, with one goal in mind, the finish line, charging towards that finish line, oblivious to anything else but the final goal. He went on, and I thought about the prosecution team in this case, with the blinders on, oblivious to all that was around them that didn't fit their theory. Our theory, of course, being that Jake Sherwood had assisted Ray Cuddy in the kidnapping of Kevin Wynn not Spiro Kemble. He made several references to our not having proved that Sherwood was the man in the house. I finally objected, noting that proving who was in the house was not the issue in the case, to which proposition Judge George was in full agreement. We were accused of feeding witnesses our theory and intimidating them into adopting it and then testifying consistently. He had little to say about the fingerprint. After all, what could he say? He spun various theories of his own about Jake having been set up by Cuddy and Watkins to protect Kemble, or maybe even Cuddy's son, Jason. His arguments were last desperate attempts to muddy the waters, of which we were also accused, because his client was finished and he knew it. The strangest argument he made was that we, the government, were afraid to call Val Gowie as a witness. So we had used other witnesses to get the parking ticket into evidence. I've already explained why we didn't call Gowie and how we were ready in the event the defense did. Then he decided to use my cross of Gowie as an example of the intimidation tactics we'd allegedly used with all of our witnesses. And then finally, the best example, the testimony on cross-examination. Ms. Gowie's up on the stand 
and she's just said that the person looks like an Italian guy. And Mr. O'Connell starts cross-examining her. And he says, you met with us, didn't you? And we didn't threaten you or force you, did we? No, no. And he says, and we asked you if you saw this guy on TV, didn't we? And his voice raises as they go along. And she says, yes. And we said, do any of the people look like him? And she says, yes. Which one? The black guy? The black guy. This black guy? This black guy? Is that going to affect the poor woman's ability to remember what she said? Is that the sort of cross-examination that went on in that office when no report was generated? Of course, no reports are required to be generated in trial prep. Now remember, the jury is sitting in the courtroom watching the exchanges between myself and Ms. Gowie. They must not have swallowed the coercion and intimidation suggested by Dan Albrecht. In fact, when he called her as his witness, she took the stand, which is next to the jury box, close to the government's table, and shyly smiled at me, giving me a little wave. I have no doubt that the jurors noticed that. In my rebuttal, I reiterated how we had fully and fairly investigated the case and presented everything to the jury without blinders. I, of course, recounted the despicable photo session and lauded Kevin and her father for their bravery through their ordeal and their composure during the trial. I know that the first thing you and your father are going to do is try to come and find me. So I need insurance. You know what insurance is? I said, yes, I think I understand. He says, well, you are my insurance. And, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to have you, t- we're going to take some pictures of you. And he said, and we're going to have you take off your clothes. And you're going to take these pictures with one of us. And we're going to cover your eyes with sunglasses so that it looks like you were cooperating in these pictures. And I started to shake because I thought, I'm going to have to take off my clothes and I'm going to be raped. And that's what I thought the next thing was. So I got very scared and I, I, I started saying, please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. And he said at that point that um, it would all be over with if I just cooperate. And I really jammed home the fingerprint on the McCarran parking ticket. It was a four-minute window, four minutes in which that car never stopped moving. No one got in, no one got out, and no one spoke German, alluding to Spiro Kimball, whom the jury had heard testify and had spoken with a discernible German accent. An issue we had argued pre-trial was whether Kevin was qualified to believe and testify that the tall, dark, uneducated-sounding man was black. I attacked that head-on. And let's not play games. At the risk of offending anybody, there are occasions when you can hear a voice and without seeing the speaker detect his race. Getting back to the fingerprints, I challenged Dan Albrecht directly. Let's get down to it. What's the explanation? I didn't hear an explanation. And that's because there is no explanation. No explanation that Sherwood was driving the car between 10.52 and 10.56 p.m. I also addressed the conspiracy theory that Cuddy and Watkins had set up Cousin Jake. And Cuddy, the mastermind, set this all up. And didn't it work out well? Is there another move in this chess game that we haven't seen yet? Because from where I'm standing, Cuddy has one foot inside a federal prison cell. And his scheme to lay off the blame on Sherwood has not benefited him. Both Dan Albrecht and Mitch Posen, nice guys outside the courtroom, surely must have regretted not accepting our plea offer a year earlier. Had Cuddy not fired Sherry Kaufman, a more aggressive lawyer than Mitch, she might have been able to persuade him to take the deal, and Jake might have followed suit. We'll never know. And Kaufman was court-appointed, meaning her legal services would have been free. Meaning the taxpayers, as usual, would foot the bill. 
Cuddy would later report that he owed Mitchell Posen $350,000 in legal fees. The jury was out, surprisingly, for parts of the next three days. Jay and I spent the evening sitting in my backyard by the pool, listening to a Frank Sinatra CD. A compromise, as Jay preferred contemporary groups like Sisters with Voices, and I preferred, and still do, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. But we could both agree on the chairman of the board. We did our best to relax, sipping adult beverages to help pass the time. Frank would have approved. A few days later, we were eating lunch at the Fremont Buffet with Sean Healy when we got word that the verdicts were in. We raced to the courthouse, only to wait outside a locked courtroom for about 45 minutes. Nobody could find Mitchell Posen. The hallway was packed with Las Vegas big shots, judges, court personnel, and members of the media. Jay and I found a small private area to do some road work, pacing anxiously the entire time. Posen finally appeared, and the verdicts were read by Judge George's courtroom clerk, Lynn Kensington. Verdict. We, the jury, in the voluntary case of honor oath to say that we find the defendant, Ray Marion Cuddy, guilty of defense charged in count one of the indictments. Verdict. We, the jury, in the voluntary case of honor oath to say that we find the defendant, Jacob Harold Sherwood, guilty of defense charged in count one of the indictments. Here we There were hugs and kisses and handshakes all around our side of the courtroom. There was a media frenzy in the halls of the courthouse, which spilled out onto the front steps outside on Las Vegas Boulevard, the Strip. Now we had our chance to lay into the defendants, after a year in which we'd stiff-armed the media with no comment. The press was more than happy to join in the torrent of condemnation. The best TV coverage of the case was by Glenn Meek, followed by Denise Rush and Carla Alston. After the verdict, the print reporter who had covered the case most thoroughly, Jeff German, followed our team across the street to a bar behind the courthouse. We shared our opinions about the defendants and the crime and the trial, which he printed in a column in the Las Vegas Sun entitled, Kidnapper Cuddy Has No Remorse. We used words like obscene, sick, perverse, cruel, and depraved. Gurman's article noted that Cuddy had often smiled and cracked jokes at the defendant's table with his lawyer, Mitchell Posen, during the course of the trial. We opined that he seemed unable to comprehend that he was going to be found guilty. Gurman went on to mention how, in contrast to Cuddy's relaxed comportment, the pressure of this trial was at times almost unbearable for us because of who the victims were. As I said, you could see that in Jay's body language and on his face during his closing argument. And Gurman shared his opinion about the case we had put together, writing that our work surely will be regarded as one of the best criminal cases ever put together in Las Vegas. Amen to that. promised the defendants that if they rejected what we felt were generous plea offers in the face of a mountain of evidence, there would be consequences. Should they put the Wynn family and the government to a trial, we would seek maximum sentences, including the filing of motions for upward departure from the basic sentencing range established by the complicated federal sentencing guidelines. We were true to our word. There are several grounds for increasing the base sentence which we argued were applicable. The first was extreme conduct, that is, conduct that is unusually heinous, cruel, brutal, or degrading to the victim. The photo session obviously qualified. In our moving papers, we had argued 
that the crimes could well have been completed without resort to the shameful conduct which followed. An industrious, family-oriented young woman, living alone for the first time, forced to submit to being photographed in pornographic style. This was beyond the pale, sadistic and obscene. We also argued for an enhancement for threat to a family member, a vulnerable victim. Another ground ball in our view. After all, the leverage against Steve Wynn was a threat to his daughter's life, his special buddy, as he had testified. With respect to Cuddy, we also moved for an upward departure for obstruction of justice, to wit, the lies he told at the contentious suppression hearing on St. Patrick's Day. Judge George granted all of our motions. At their respective sentencings held on different dates, neither Sherwood, who went first, nor Cuddy, acknowledged their guilt or expressed an iota of remorse for the pain they had inflicted upon the winds. On August 8, 1994, after four and a half hours of argument, with which I will not bore you, Judge George ultimately agreed with us and dropped the hammer on Sherwood. 19 years. Judge George was clearly offended by Sherwood's demeanor as he was sentenced. He said, I watched this guy, Mr. Albrecht. He comes up to the podium, and I know you didn't instruct him to do this. He casually leans on the podium. He picks his teeth during the process of sentencing. Not an ounce of remorse as far as I'm concerned, and I just don't think with that and everything else that he's entitled to anything less than the maximum. I would characterize what you did as brutalizing, Miss Wynn her family and indirectly your own family. Conduct was not only opportunistic, uh, but it was, in my judgment, base and vile. The Review Journal reported that as Judge George sentenced Sherwood, Steve Wynn, seated with his family in the front row directly behind us, stared at Sherwood's family, who were likewise seated in the front row behind Sherwood and Albrecht's. The press reported that they got up and immediately left the courtroom angrily and quickly, to begin their drive back to Gary, Indiana. Afterwards, Jay told reporters that the defendants were perverts and that their conduct repulsive and just plain sick. On Thursday, September 1st, it was Cuddy's turn. In addition to all of the sentencing guideline departures, I argued that Las Vegas had been victimized for the past two years by outsiders, L.A. gangbangers, in a series of violent armed takeover robberies of banks, casinos, and jewelry stores. This would become my next big project as soon as the wind trial verdicts came in. I characterized these crimes as acts of terrorism, which were having an actual impact on the city's lifeblood, hotel and gaming. It was time to send the message that both visitors and residents of Las Vegas, whether rich or poor, had a right to the pursuit of happiness without fear. In a comparatively brief 90-minute proceeding, Judge George meted out a sentence of 24 and a half years for Cuddy. As he had with Sherwood, he expressed his displeasure with Cuddy in no uncertain terms. After the discovery that the defendant would not be receiving a large civil judgment, this defendant made a choice to disrupt the young woman's life and the life of her family. In the name of greed, he chose to stalk and prey on this woman. This greed led him to commit what I consider acts of depravity, which hopefully will not, but may, permanently scar the lives of the victims. In his quest for riches, the defendant apparently did not consider what effect his conduct would have upon the Wynn family. If the situation had been reversed, and had it been Mr. Cuddy's child who had been abducted, threatened, and humiliated, degraded, the court wonders how sympathetic Mr. Cuddy would have been to those who wronged him and his family. Viewing the demeanor and the uh, conduct of Mr. Cuddy, I see absolutely no uh, evidence of uh, remorse or regret except for what it uh, may bring him. There's absolutely no excuse 
I have to add that we were extremely fortunate to have a jurist of Lloyd George's stature and caliber presiding over this case. As they had been since the verdicts, the press were all over the defendants upon their sentencings. Jay and I used any manner of pejoratives to describe their conduct. The wind kidnapping case was over. Almost. The day came to argue Cuddy and Sherwood's appeals. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals hears the complaints of defendants and occasionally prosecutors who feel they've been wronged in either the highest court of one of the states within its purview or a federal district court sitting in one of those states. Appeals are a special breed of cat. Most prosecutors entered their field because they wanted to spend the majority of the time in the courtroom, not at a desk doing research. The reality, of course, is that a good prosecutor must become adept at legal research and writing which was frankly a major weakness in my game, as well as investigative and courtroom skills. Moreover, the vast majority of cases do not go to trial, but result in a plea bargain. Were all the defense attorneys to decide tomorrow to take every case to trial, the system would grind to a halt. So too would the deals which benefit defendants, most of whom are not only guilty, but stand no realistic chance of prevailing at a trial. In any event, the type of lawyer who becomes a prosecutor is typically one who would rather visit the dentist than work on an appeal. Many DA's offices and U.S. attorney's offices have appellate sections in which specific attorneys are assigned to handle all appeals. If the office does not have such a unit, however, the trial attorneys must handle their own appeals. Anytime a defendant is convicted, you can count on the filing of an appeal, especially if he was represented by assigned counsel, legal aid in state courts, or the federal public defender in federal court. The reason? It's free. Free, that is, to the defendant, but like everything else, not to the taxpayers, you and me, who foot the bill. The appellate process begins with the filing of an appellate brief. The document rarely is, of course, brief. That's because the job of the appellate attorney representing the convicted defendant is to examine, under a microscope, with the advantage of hindsight and the luxury of time, the entire record from the lower court, the charging documents, the grand jury proceedings, the motions, the trial in its entirety, the sentencing hearings, etc. The prosecutor must review the entire record as well. This means ordering at great expense to, guess who, the transcript of all relevant pretrial proceedings, the entire trial, and the sentencing, and poring over it until he's conversant with the facts, then researching the law with respect to the issues raised by the defense, and preparing a responsive or answering brief. This can be an extremely tedious and time-consuming job. In my experience, even the simplest answering brief will consume at least a full work week. However, since there is much work to do in the average work week, the 50 hours or so required for the brief will consist predominantly of nights and weekends. The irony is that the busiest trial prosecutors, who generate the most trial convictions, also wind up with the most appeals. This is the reason plea bargaining is a necessity. In fact, even negotiated pleas can result in appeals if the prosecutor does not secure a solid waiver of appeal from the defendant as part of the deal. But that's another story. The filing of the answering brief does not, however, necessarily end matters. Sometimes it seems that cases never end. The parties are sometimes required by the appellate court to appear for oral argument. In the federal system, this means a trip to the circuit court 
Where a three-judge panel will hear the defendant's attorney state his case based upon his brief, and the prosecutor will respond. In the case of Cuddy and Sherwood, argument was set for September 14, 1995, in San Francisco, at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Just when you thought it was safe to attend to your current caseload, it's time to spend hours preparing for an appellate oral argument. What makes this particularly time-consuming and frustrating is that the defendants may have raised one issue, or as here, ten. Parties, however, have no idea which issues the appellate court is interested in or will be questioning them about. Hundreds of cases may be cited in the briefs, and the lawyers are expected to be familiar with all of them. The task is nearly impossible for a prosecutor in a busy office. A retained attorney, or even an assigned attorney, paid $75 an hour on the Ninth Circuit back then, can take as much time as he needs and bill the client, the taxpayer, for his time. Not so with a prosecutor, who gets paid for the same 40-hour work week as a 100-hour week. Unfortunately for me, Jay was trying a long, complicated case in Reno when the responsive briefs in Cuddy and Sherwood would do. So I banged them out, but with tremendous help from a great colleague, another team player, our de facto appellate chief, Camille Dam. The Cuddy brief wound up being 41 pages long, Sherwood, 36 pages. Jay was back in the office when oral argument was scheduled, so off we went to San Francisco. I won't belabor the proceedings, but for one memorable part. When being questioned by the three-judge panel, I couldn't remember the name of a particular recent case. Jay and I had just discussed this case, but when asked about it, the name escaped me. One of the judges, Alex Kaczynski, started grilling, then berating me about my research skills, and I tried to make light of it. This guy, known for both his brilliance and his arrogance, was having no part of that. After a few minutes of back and forth, he spun his chair around. For the remainder of the argument, I pled the government's case to a pair of appropriately respectful Ninth Circuit judges and the back of a chair. Anyway, and this gets complicated, like I said, I'm not an appellate type. Our convictions were affirmed, but on one upper departure issue, where the Kevin Wynn's life had been threatened, they ruled against us. The case, however, ended up back in front of a different panel of Ninth Circuit judges, which new panel found that ruling to have been clearly erroneous and affirmed Judge George's rulings at sentencing. The upper departures would be applied, and that, of course, pleased us. On another upward departure issue, whether Kevin was, for the purposes of vulnerable victim status, a victim at all, that first panel had ruled two to one in favor of us. There, however, Judge Kaczynski had dissented from the majority, occasioning a rebuke of his view in Judge Michael Daly Hawkins' concurring opinion. Years later in his career, after he had ascended to Chief Judge of the Ninth Circuit, the buzz being that he was destined for the U.S. Supreme Court, Kaczynski self-destructed. On June 11, 2008, the Los Angeles Times published an article entitled, Ninth Circuit's Chief Judge Posted Sexually Explicit Matter on His Website. The article reported that, among other things, the judge, who is currently presiding over an obscenity trial in Los Angeles, has maintained a publicly accessible website featuring sexually explicit photos and videos, including a photo of naked women on all fours painted to look like cows, a video of a half-dressed man cavorting with a sexually aroused farm animal, and a graphic step-by-step -step pictorial in which a woman is seen shaving her pubic hair. 
after a judicial investigation found that he had exhibited poor judgment in a matter which could embarrass the judiciary, Kaczynski took the web server offline and promised to delete permanently the sexually explicit material. Kaczynski claimed he believed his personal files could not be accessed by the public and cooperated with the investigation, made certain pledges, and therefore was not disciplined. In 2017, after 15 female staffers alleged that Kaczynski had engaged in inappropriate sexual conduct, he resigned abruptly. That appellate argument to the back of a chair was just another day in the life of a career prosecutor dedicated to putting crooks where they belong. So ultimately, our convictions and the defendant's sentencings were affirmed in a published Ninth Circuit opinion, actually in several. Despite all the challenges and obstacles I've told you about, the good guys won and justice was done. As one case closes, another opens. Next time on Vegas Fed, Tom O'Connell takes us through another case. Thanks for listening to Vegas Fed. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020, Tom O'Connell.